Welcome to Unconformed Podcast. This is a 30-ish minute podcast created to celebrate and showcase diversity within Black Male Thought. I'm Darius Watkins. Yep, I'm Ryan Thomas. Hey, and we are live. Bro, it's been a crazy yeah. week. It's been like a crazy, bro. What's been crazy about the week, man? Talk uh, to me. I don't know if you know, but Beth Moore has left the SBC. Oh, okay, uh-huh. okay. For those who don't know, Beth Moore is a white woman. She's a pastor, I guess you would call her. A, a teacher, teacher, yeah. Teacher, I guess that's a better word. Mm-hmm. And uh, she left the SBC. Why? And, and you want oh, to I know why. what the SBC is? I know exactly why. Yeah, the Southern Baptist Com- Convention. Yeah. Convention, okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> this, this is a quote from her, and you can make of it what you will. I love so many Southern Baptist people so many Southern Baptist churches, but I don't identify with some things in our heritage that haven't remained in the past. You know, honestly, Beth Moore gets a a hats off from me because she's talking about racism, people, right? (laughs) People in the SBC are racist. Mm -hmm. Not all of them, but most of them. Not not most of them, a lot of them. I want to be fair. But yeah, you know, if you see racism, call it out. Leave the, leave. I don't even understand why this is so hard for people. Yeah, and it's people should be leaving. <laughs> yeah, and it's interesting because like not only has Beth Moore left, uh, Charlie Dates has left, uh, John O has left. Um, so it's like you're seeing like people just leave, um, yeah. and it's it's interesting to watch. And like as as Christians, and for people who don't know, uh, this is a podcast where we talk about several things. But um, I'm sorry if you hear here, Kim. You just got to hear this for a second. But um, <laughs> with, that, with that being said. Um, it's, it's interesting because these people are leaving a denomination, like these strong leaders are leaving that denomination because of like where they see some Christians involvement. And it's interesting to see, it, I, I wonder how many people who are on the fringe about Christianity have left the faith because of similar issues. Yeah. So Yeah, I mean, and, and for, you know, obviously the SBC has come out publicly and said, we don't support critical race theory, you know. Bold statement. If, yeah, a statement, you know, as if, critical race theory is like perpetuating the division in the church, not racism. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. So it's like, you know, honestly, like we think about the letter that was sent a few weeks ago mm-hmm. um, that was laced with racist terminology and just like basically talking to black people like their children that need to stay in line. Um, and I'm not surprised, man. Beth Moore did the right thing. Yeah. And I think I was talking to you like about her about two months ago, like nobody has had nobody has become more of an ally and also like been like the voice of reason, like amongst like two totally different groups of Christianity than her. So it's interesting to see her leave. And I think that that's a big loss personally. Um, yeah. I also think that is uh, symbolic of where things stand with with a lot of people as it relates to uh, religions, denominations that um, that make their gods things that shouldn't be their guys. And that's the best way I'll put that. Read, yeah. Take that how you want to take it. But what's going on with you though? Man, I'm good. I mean, we're talking about current events. Uh, I, I'm thinking about the Megan and Harry interview that Oprah did, you know, Queen <laughs> Oprah <laughs> this past Sunday. Now, yeah. this is my thing. Like, I actually don't know much about, you know, um, these royal people and the royal mm-hmm. family and everything. Mm-hmm. But I liked something I saw on Facebook where somebody was basically commenting on it and saying we can drag the royal family for being racist and worrying about whether or not the kid is going to be too dark Mm -hmm. all day but let's also talk about the colorism issue 
And I thought that was good because it kind of kind of goes back to our uh, episode we had, uh, mm-hmm. you know, like a couple you know weeks ago where mm-hmm. we talked about colorism. Meghan Markle is black, but she Pass. easily passes as white. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, as far as black people go, we actually question her blackness. Mm-hmm. Then you see the royal family questioning her, you know, whiteness. You know, you're not white enough, and so it kind of like uh, it just opened my eyes. This Facebook post I saw. Where basically it was calling out like, man, black people, we do this too. You know, we're complicit in this too when it comes to how we deal with color. So I thought it was a really interesting post. I wish I could post it on my my Facebook page, but I can't seem to find it. Uh, but yeah, I, you know, I feel like it's it's something that's good to t- always keep talking about. Light skin, mm-hmm. black is not the same as white. And Megan, she's she's on that line, but she's still a black woman. Yeah, and, they left. That's why they yeah. left the royal family or whatever. Yeah, that's real. And and it was said, or Meghan Marcus Markle said that uh, the royal family had had uh, questions about how dark the baby would be, um, how dark Correct. their baby would be. Uh, so that's what what we're referencing. So it's definitely interesting. And and I still don't understand this. Like, I'll just call it a fetish of like British culture, like within America. I know next to nothing about these people. Um, and and I, I just think it's weird. Like we we won a Boston Tea Party. It's over, folks. Like I don't, <laughs> I don't, yeah, that I don't was know. like the 1700s, right? Yeah. yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't yeah. Know. So I mean, if, if we not, never mind. I was going to say something. Give me in trouble. I'm not even going to say. It. <laughs> yeah, don't don't go there. Keep it light. Uh, yeah, it light. hey, but uh, it's Women's like, History Month, man. You know yeah, we got to celebrate is, the women. It is Women's History Month, and we do have to celebrate the women. Shout out to Megan. Shout out to Beth. You know it's funny. Like we just mentioned two women. I don't even know if that was planned, but it was not. Uh, it just it, was, went, it, it went down that way. Uh, but shout out to them for a real, uh, real deal, like having voices and using those voices for change. And also, um, shout out to Oprah. I think I saw on, on Twitter the other day somebody said um, Oprah literally woke up one morning and was like, "Let's take down the royal family." Uh- <laughs> <laughs> Queen Oprah, absolutely. So, so yeah, man. Shout out to them. But speaking <laughs> speaking of women, um, we have another guest on the podcast today um, for Women's History Month. If you have not heard the episode with um, Ariana Pondexter, go back and listen to that. But today we have Kim Dandridge. Kim Dandridge is a CEO. I keep saying CEO. I don't know why I say that. She's going to be the CEO. Maybe you're a prophetic, my brother. I guess so. (laughs) But but with that being said, uh, Kim Dandridge is a corporate attorney for Amazon. And she has a dope story, um, a dope background. I think you guys will be motivated, encouraged just by a lot of things, a lot of things that she had to go through as um, a black girl from Mississippi who is now a corporate attorney from Amazon. You, you can't make this kind of mm-hmm. stuff up. So it's really, really dope. Uh, one thing that I do want to say is that this episode was recorded in December um, and we shelved it for a little minute. So if you hear her talking about like this year, next year, anything like that, she's referencing 2020 and 2021. Um, so be mindful yeah. of that. And she also makes a job announcement. So it's really, really cool. We'll be the first ones to hear it, I think. Um, so, so yeah, Ryan, you got, you got anything to add? Yeah, shout out to Kim. She's an inspiration. She's uh, we're representing for Women's History Month every Thursday this month. Uh, so we will have a different woman, and I feel like this is just gonna be uh, inspirational for everybody who listens. Yeah. So without further ado, the Kim Dandridge. All right. Today on the podcast, we have a very, very special guest. Uh, somebody who I consider um, somebody to be inspirational. Somebody who I've known for quite a while. Uh, somebody who has a resume that is better than yours. Um, if, yes, you, if you are listening, <laughs> it is better than yours. Uh, this person is currently a corporate attorney for Amazon. Prior to that, she did a uh, counsel for Old Navy, um, Atlanta, Gap, 
Banana Republic. She's published for Forbes, Teen Vogue, multiple other avenues. She's She's been a, a White House intern during the uh, Obama administration. And she was in the office of presidential personnel. And she just does a lot. And she was also the first black woman to be ASB president at Ole Miss. So um, I say all that to say that like, she does a lot. I'm talking about Miss Kimberly Dandridge. How you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, guys. Excited to be here. <laughs> Genius, billionaire, philanthropist, lawyer, what else? There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, we'll speak the billionaire part into existence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you work for Amazon, so you, you're on your way. Uh, but, but with that being said, um, I know I gave um, a brief introduction of you. Is there anything that I missed? No, I'm just happy to be here with you guys and excited to be a part of this podcast that you all have been doing great work on. And so just thrilled to be here tonight. Yeah, that's dope. So first and foremost, like, can you tell us like what a corporate attorney for Amazon does? Because I feel like a lot of people don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's it, there. It's so funny because people always ask me um, kind of what is a corporate attorney and kind of what do you yeah. all do? And to be quite honest, when I was in law school, I had no idea what you know, being a corporate attorney entailed. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you think about it, every single company that you probably ever interact with, whether it's, you know, when you go pick up something to eat at Chick-fil-A or you're going to fight over the new uh, chicken sandwich at Popeye's, like, or you're going to Walmart or or you're going to buy something off Amazon. One of the things that all these companies have in common is that they have attorneys behind these big brands that kind of really – um, you know, draft the contracts and, you know, not even just draft contracts or, you know, handle legal matters, whether, um, you know, something comes up from one of these companies, but also advise the business on just risk and also various decision making um, that the businesses do. And so um, it's just, it's a variety of different things. One day you could be advising someone on a contract or, um, you know, giving them, um, helping them draft a contract for a new deal or a partnership that they've decided to do with another company. So like, for instance, in my old role um, um, at Amazon, I worked with mobile carriers. And so we partner with mobile carriers to um, offer Amazon services to their customers. So if you've ever seen, you know, the advertisement of get Amazon Prime, if you sign up for Metro by T-Mobile, those mm-hmm. are the types of deals that I would work on in my previous role. And so we would negotiate those contracts and then review all the marketing that partners like T-Mobile um, and other partners that we have would market to their customers to get them to sign for Amazon. So there's contracts behind that kind of work. It's approvals um, that legal kind of handles. It's marketing. Um, but even in my old role when I was at Old Navy and Gap, I was a real estate attorney there and I basically um, drafted and negotiated leases for new stores. So any Old Navy store um, that's opened in the last like probably two years, um, mm-hmm. I've worked on a lot of those Old Navy stores. And so it's drafting the lease agreements and Mm-hmm. Um, I worked in a lot of stores in Canada and it's just working with landlords and other folks to, you know, get the best deal for Gap in terms of being able to go into a market and offer a new store to customers. And so, um, yeah, it, it's so funny because there's so much a corporate attorney can do. Um, and it's not just, you know, drafting on contracts, but a lot of it is more so um, I like to tell people it's less practicing law when you become a corporate attorney at a company mm-hmm. and more about advising the business and like helping the business make the best decisions that's going to impact consumers and customers. Mm-hmm. And so that's pretty, it's a long answer, but there's so much. <laughs> I, mean, um, I actually just started and I haven't even announced this yet, but I just started a new role at Amazon about um, two weeks ago. Um, mm-hmm. I joined the Prime Video legal team and I'm one of the newest entertainment lawyers for Amazon Prime Video 
And um, my new role now entails me negotiating content deals with studios um, to put on Amazon Prime Video. So it's a very different role. I never thought I'd be a corporate entertainment lawyer. Didn't know what a corporate entertainment lawyer was. But um, wow. yeah, I'm actually going to be relocating to L.A. to join my new team next year. And so I haven't even really shared that um, widely yet. So kind of like first to know, you guys. Okay, uh, okay. So we, we got some, wait, see, we listen, got some breaking news. Hit them with the horn. That is breaking news. That's um, some breaking news right there. And when you say next year, you mean 2021, right? Uh, 2021, yeah, after yeah. COVID, when the offices open back up. So our studios right now in LA, they're currently, you know, everybody's working from home. Um, mm -hmm. But we're based um, in Culver City there and have pretty large studios. And they do a lot of great work down there. My new team is located down there. And so I'm going to probably relocate um, probably mid next year. I'm kind of going to stay here in Seattle. But yeah, I just started this new team, new boss, new everything. It feels like I joined a new company, um, yeah. to be quite honest with you, because it's just such a different type of work that I've been doing. Mm -hmm. um, it's straight up entertainment, you know, working with major studios to get content on Amazon Prime Video. So I'm super excited about this opportunity, this new yeah. role. And um, one of the things I love about working at Amazon is that there's so many opportunities and you can kind of do a lot of different things. And mm -hmm. this opportunity just kind of came really fell out of the sky um, for me and my old team presented it, you know, presented this opportunity to me and I just kind of jumped on it. So I'm super excited. That's what's up. And uh, and real quick before you ask your question, Ryan, cause I know you about to, I, I can see it in your eyebrows. Um, <laughs> but um, I feel you already said it. Like a lot of people don't necessarily like go to law school to be a corporate attorney. So like what led, what led you to like pursue that route? And what's that your original route when you intended when you intended on going to law school? Yeah, you know, I think when I went to law school, honestly, you know, I nobody in my family ever went to college. My parents, neither one of them had a college degree. My mom, honestly, could not read that well. And she always like pushed education with us. My dad was the same way, pushed education with us. And, you know, they always, you know, pushed us to do well in school. And I think for me, going to law school was more about you know, I want to get the highest level of education that I can, like my parents weren't able to do this. And so I want to try to get to, you know, get as much as I can and get a doctoral degree if I can. And so for me, um, to be quite honest, I was like, law school's three years. It's pretty short. I ain't got time to go to med school. It's too long. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so I ended up going to law school, but I didn't know at the time kind of what I wanted to do. And I advise people now, like they're thinking about going to law school, like really think about it. Um, and, you know, maybe take a couple years off work and then figure out if you want to do it, do it. Because I went straight through out of undergrad and I got there and there was so much I didn't know that I was kind of learning a lot of the stuff about the legal profession and kind of what all the legal profession entailed. And so I think that it was a lot of learning on the go. And so I didn't really know at the time what I wanted to do. Um, the reason why I kind of wanted to get in corporate law is that one of my goals is to really, you know, you know, really give back and really, um, build generational wealth to help not only my family, but to help other generation of black uh, teenagers and kids coming up, particularly in Mississippi, um, to be able to help. And I felt like with me going into the corporate world, like there's so many resources in corporate America and corporate America is really powerful. And, you know, a lot of people say, oh, why didn't you go practice criminal law and all these other things? And I think mm -hmm. my answer to that is that we have to have change and we have to have people in every realm of different sides of you know the world whether it's yeah. corporate nonprofit, you know social justice there has to be people that have the right type of passion and heart kind of scattered throughout and so i think that you can um, effectuate change even in a corporate setting um and because there's so many resources there and there's resources that you know you are given and you know i'm able to use the resources that i have um, been able to do through corporate law to help other people. And so the reason I got into it ultimately, it wasn't, you know, 
I didn't, you know, plan it um, initially, but um, I had an internship in law school that exposed me to it. And I ended up finding it very interesting. I saw the benefits of being a corporate lawyer long term. Um, I knew that it was something going to help me grow. And it was one of those things where I kind of been the person that when things come up or opportunities come about, like they that sound interesting, I'm never one to shy away from those. I kind of jump on them. And it's kind of how I got into corporate law. That's dope. Okay. Uh, I also see on your resume that you went to Thurgood Marshall School of Law. I um, did. So, uh, man, obviously Thurgood Marshall is a, a, a legend, like, you know, in, in the black community. And um, the first person that comes to mind when I think about Thurgood Marshall is Chadwick Bozeman. So um, I guess my thought, my, my question for you is, um, you know, was there some type of connection to Chadwick when he played the role of uh, Thurgood Marshall since you kind of attended the school? And then what were your thoughts on uh, his passing, his recent passing? Yeah, I actually remember going to see the film and just being completely moved um, by the way in which he portrayed and, and acted in that role. And just so, I mean, you could just feel it sitting there, the impact that not only Thurgood had, but how Bozeman had an impact just by playing the role. And I think that that goes and shows you just even, you know, how much his impact was felt just not on the screen, but outside of the screen as well. And I think that for me, when he passed, I was just like, one, it's just, you know, we've all had this crazy year of so many things happening and, yeah, you know, Kobe and, right. you know, like thing after thing, like, you yeah. know, just constantly, you know, with COVID and, you know, the pandemic and, you know, everybody, people losing their jobs. It's just been a rough year. And so, when I found out the news about him, it was kind of almost like another, you know, blow. And I think mm -hmm. so many of us felt that way, especially the black community, because you have this person who's, who, who their impact is felt, not just on the screen, but also felt outside of the screen, whether it's where he portrayed Thurgood Marshall, or whether, you know, his role in Black Panther, or, mm -hmm. you know, the philanthropic work that he's done, or the commencement speech that he gave at Howard University. Like, yeah. this is a man who, you know, really didn't just portray characters, on a screen or a set, but really impacted the lives of so many um, children and brown and black children um, in the world. And I think that, you know, when he passed away, it was sad. It was sad. And I think a lot of people felt a genu genuine and deep sadness. But I also think we all felt this sense of like solace in the fact that we had a responsibility in some sense to go out and do more by knowing that he was playing these roles and giving us such character and life via, via film. But he was also struggling with this battle that none of us really knew about. And I think that mm. we were left at the, you know, when he passed away with this, you know, overwhelming grief, but then this solace in the fact that he also has inspired us to keep going and fighting in spite of the year that we've had and the, the struggles and the challenges that we all face and are going through. So I yeah, definitely, you, you, you also wrote an article about grief a few years ago, you know? Yeah. Um, so what, what advice would you give to us? You know, after 2020, we've been through a lot, a lot of pain, a lot of death, a lot of suffering. Like what, what, what word would you give to our listeners who are dealing with grief right now? Like, like how would you advise someone who's dealing with grief? Yeah, you know, grief is a hard thing and it's something we don't really talk about. Like growing up, you know, people don't really tell us. You see people dying, but nobody tells us how to deal with like grief, whether it's grief of someone dying, whether it's grief of someone leaving a relationship that you've invested a lot in. Like there's so many different levels of grief, whether it's a parent abandoning you. I mean, there's just so many different complexities to grief and we don't talk about it because I feel like sometimes we are 
a little bit resistant to opening kind of more vulnerable parts of who we are. And so mm-hmm. I really wish we had a culture of normalizing, talking about grief and pain and suffering, because at the end of the day, you know, we all have differences that make us, you know, diverse humans, but we all at some point will go through some form of grief, suffering, hurt, pain. And my mom used to say, you know, if you haven't gone through anything in life, like just keep on living. And she was so right about that. And when she died for me, it was like, man, I didn't realize that what she was saying, like, if you haven't gone through anything, keep on living. Like I'm keeping on, but she's gone. I never imagined I would have to keep on going through this thing called life with all this trauma without her. And so for me, um, you know, I, I encourage people, you know, that are dealing with things like talk to somebody like, you know, deal with your grief, however you feel best to deal with it. But I highly encourage people to go to counseling, go to therapy. You know, there are a lot of resources out there to help you cope. If you're going through a really rough time, talk to people, be vulnerable, tell people how you're feeling, because it's not healthy to hold those feelings and confine those feelings um, within. Um, and I really, you know, hope that people I think one of the things that 2020 has done is I think it has connected all of us in some sense, in the sense that we all in some ways have either struggled or have felt uncomfortable this year or had to get outside of our norm or change things about our life. And I think that, you know, we've all seen some threads of connected um, tissue here within this 2020. And so I hope that we take that and, and allow ourselves to be more vulnerable and sharing with other people um, you know, some of the struggles and grief that we've experienced in 2020 in hopes that it will start conversations. And I hope that those conversations will lead to healing and, and more, you know, support from each other, um, you know. And so my my advice is just, you know, keep on, you know, keeping your head up and, you know, trials and troubles that come and grief is inevitable. But, you know, lean on those who love you and, and reach out for help if you if you need it. Yeah, that's good. And uh, one thing I, I just add, add to about grief, I think that like the perception is that like once you talk to somebody or whatever, like it's good in two weeks, but like grief doesn't necessarily work like that. Like grief is something that's kind of like it has stages, you know what I'm saying? So like it may you may feel good one day and not so good the next day. Like that that doesn't mean anything is wrong. That's, that, that just means you're going through the stages and, and we just got to normalize like knowing that, uh, knowing like what that's like. So yeah. Absolutely. And I'll just say one thing on that. Like my mom passed away. It'll be five years this Saturday. And, you know, when, if you haven't experienced the loss of a parent, like, you know, from the outside looking in, people are like, oh, it's five years. You've probably gotten over it. You know, they treat grief like a cold almost, like it's something you get over. But, you know, there have been years of my mom's death anniversary that it's felt like it happened the the week before, you know, even though years have passed. And so, you know, it's just one of those things that you have no control over. And so, um, you know, you definitely have to give yourself grace. And I always encourage people that haven't experienced this type of grief, give other people grace as well, because you just don't know um, how other people are handling or dealing with things like that if you haven't been through it yourself. Yeah, that's good. And thank you for sharing it. Um, thanks for your vulnerability yeah, and uh, openness in there. Um, I do want to go back and, and uh, talk about something that Ryan alluded to. Uh, he said that you went to uh, Thurgood, Thurgood Marshall School of Law. Uh, for those who don't know, that is at Texas Southern University. Uh, TSU is an HBCU, uh, but you got your undergrad degree from Ole Miss. Um, if you're listening right now and you've never heard an episode from us, uh, we actually had an episode on HBCUs versus PWIs, like amongst black people. Um, a lot of perceptions and a lot of misconceptions and whatnot that like, that's kind of related to that. So if you could like, and I won't say briefly, but uh, but if you could just kind of like, tell us like your experience at Ole Miss and like what led you to like wanting to go to HBCU for law school. 
Yeah, you know, one of the things I'll be real, real with y'all, because I, I try my best, you know, to keep it always keep it 100. But mm-hmm. I have such an issue with people that have the PWI versus HBCU argument, because mm-hmm. one, I find that a lot of times the people that are participating in those those arguments have only been to one. So they only have one perspective. (laughs) And I always tell people, like, you can't talk to me about that argument unless you've been to both and you see Mm -hmm. the value in both. Because I I truly believe that there is there's nothing wrong with a black person wanting to go to a PWI. And there's nothing wrong with a black person wanting to go to HBCU. Like, Mm -hmm. I commend any black person that's out here getting it, doing what they need to do to, to advance themselves, to give themselves knowledge. And it doesn't matter if you go to HBCU or PWI as long as you're bettering yourself. And so I like to tell people that, you know, and I think that there's value in both. Like, I decided to go to Ole Miss. Ole Miss gave me a couple dollars. It was down the street from my hometown. I went there. It was great. I was able to do things at Ole Miss that I would have never done at an HBCU. You know, I was able to meet and and be a part of communities that I never would have been a part of had I gone to an HBCU. And so, you know, I was able to get to know people from different cultures, backgrounds, and walks of life and experience things, the good, the bad, and the ugly that I would not have experienced had I gone to HBU. I would not have experienced racism on campus probably had I gone to an HBCU, but that was an experience I feel like that I needed because Ole Miss gave me a glimpse of the real world. Like it gave me a glimpse of like what I was going to be stepping out into when I left, you know, to graduate um, and out there, what I work in, what I've seen, Um, you know, when I go to cities that, you know, don't look like my HBCU, the cities that I've lived in as diverse as they are, um, don't look like, you know, going to TSU. Um, And I decided to go to TSU. I went there with my cousin to visit. Um, She was, she had actually gotten into TSU. She asked me to ride down to Texas with her. I went down to TSU with her, was not planning to go to TSU law school. And we walked into the campus and immediately there was this sense of like family. And I was like, wow, this is dope. Like the admissions counselors, like everybody was greeting us at the door. Like it just felt like instant family. I literally applied the next week, got in, mm-hmm. told my cousin, I'm going here with you. Like didn't even think twice about it. Mm-hmm. Um, ended up just, I really, I honestly, it wasn't like a thought process of like me going, you know, having this idea of going to HBC mm-hmm. right out of Ole Miss mm-hmm. or anything like that. You know, I wasn't angry leaving Ole Miss, going to an HBCU. Mm-hmm. It just happened. And I don't regret it. I had such an amazing time at Texas Southern University. Like I would not have traded my law school experience for nothing in the world. Like sometimes I was thinking when I made the decision to go to TSU, I was like, should I have gone to Ivy League? Should I have done this? Should I have done that? You know, all these different things. And I have not not one single regret about going to Thurgood Marshall School of Law. It was one of the best decisions I've ever made. And I needed that experience. I needed to be um, around, you know, a culture that set me up for success after law school. And I needed a family feel in law school. Law school is hard. Mm-hmm. And to be able to go to a law school where you felt like family. <laughs> I heard, I heard that I heard that the I heard the bar has a fifty percent fail rate. That's what oh, I've heard. Bar is crazy, yeah. Fifty percent fail. <laughs> exactly. I mean, and, and going in knowing all these things, but then having a support system like I had at Thurgood was just so powerful. Like it just was. It was amazing, I, and I don't regret it at all. Yeah, and, and I think that's. And I think that's important to mention, just because, like, um, in our episode with HBCUs, uh, Demarcus Little talked about like how a super high percentage of doctors, uh, black doctors attended HBCUs and 50% of black lawyers, um, last time I checked, attended HBCUs. Yeah. So like, that's important to mention, like when we talk about like HBCUs, I think that people who don't attend HBCUs have a completely different mind- mindset as it relates to HBCUs. But like, yeah. 
they're the ones that's popping out the black professionals. Um, at, yeah, they at, are. An increasingly high, high rate. So Exactly, because we feel supported there. You know, we feel supported. The doctoral programs are hard. Going to med school is hard. Law school is hard. And we not only are succeeding and graduating those programs, but we're also doing it with this family and sense of community and support behind us, which I think pushes us even further in our success, knowing that we have a community and a family behind us, um, you know, cheering for us. And that's definitely been my case, having gone to Thurgood Marshall School of Law. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I wanted to ask you just to switch paces, uh, you know, switch lanes real quick, make a pivot, if you may. Uh, I want to ask you what your thoughts are about our political future. Now, you, you probably haven't heard much of our podcast, so you don't really know where Darius or I stand politically. But we know that 2020 has been, well, it was a very uh, politically charged year. And uh, you saw a lot of different things and a lot of different policies and a lot of things we probably never saw before. So, you know, you've done work in the White House. What is, what is your prediction for our political future in America? Yeah, well, I don't know your political preference or whatnot, but I just hope y'all didn't vote for Trump. But um, (laughs) (laughs) I'm about to give her a round of applause for that. (laughs) No, um, but you know, I, you know, America is going to America. Period. Um, That's always the case. Um, You know, and when I think about our political future, you know, I'm hopeful. I think that I'm hopeful for a couple of things. You know, there are a lot of, there's there's a lot of people in America full of shit. And, you know, a lot of people (laughs) on some bullshit. And, you know, I think that, you know, given, even given those people, I still think we're going to be all right. I think that we're going to be all right because, you know, we have people that are, for every one of those people that acts the plum fool, the racist, the, you know, bigots, you know, all those folks, we have people that are out on the front lines fighting for equal rights, fighting for justice. And it gives me hope because I feel like that those voices of those folks that are out there fighting day in and day out to make this place better out of 100 percent outperform the people that are out there, you know, spewing hate. And so I'm hopeful because I just, I have it in, and maybe I'm just, you know, a hopeless romantic. I have it in my heart that there are more people out there that are good than bad. And, you know, it just gives me hope because I look at our generation and we just really aren't with the shit. Like we are like, look, we're not going to take this. We're going to go out to the streets and march. Like we'll tear up your building if we don't agree. Like it's so many different, you know, our generation is really kind of more like, we're about that action. And I feel like it gives me hope knowing that, you know, our generation is, you know, willing to go out there and fight for people who can't fight for themselves. And I'm hopeful. I think our political future, you know, it's, it, it's, it's a little shaky, um, but I feel like we're going to be all right. In the words of Kendrick Lamar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, the anthem. Uh, yeah. With that being said, um, and this is just my personal experience. I think that like when I was at Ole Miss, um, I experienced like racism, like you, like you said, um, but I also experienced like people who I never would have thought like were advocates for me. Um, and that was important for me to see just like, like growing up and whatnot. So yeah. um, your experience at Ole Miss, um, I just want to talk to you a little bit about that because you were like the first black woman in Ole Miss history to become the ASB president. So like, what was that like for you? Yeah. You know, um, I, people always ask me now about politics and I'm so removed from politics these days. Like I obviously vote and I have an opinion. If you follow me on Twitter, you know, I have a strong opinion about politics. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but I'm not interested in getting in politics. And part of the reason I'm not, and I'm kind of good. I love supporting my friends that are in it. I donate to their campaign, but 
I tell people all the time, running for student body president and being student body president Ole Miss was enough politics to last me a lifetime. Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> it was so political. I mean, it was very, you know, it was like a real election. It got, it got nasty at times. It was, mm-hmm. you know, hurtful at times. There was a lot of stress. You know, it was a paid job. I got paid to be student body president at Ole Miss, you know. Um, oh, wow. And so, yeah, I mean, I had a salary, you know, I had got some classes thrown in. I mean, it was a full-time job and they expected that. And so... Um, you know, it, it, with it, though, came a lot of stress. I think, though, it strengthened me um, as a person, as a professional. Like, I feel like people always talk about how calm I am. Um, and I think the reason why I'm so calm is because I've been through so much, whether it's grief of my mom passing away, whether it's like putting up racism at Ole Miss, like whether it's, you know, just dealing with life. I think that I've become such a resilient person um, that, you know, a lot of it has to do with the experiences I've had and being student body president at Ole Miss and being the first, um, is definitely, has definitely inspired me. Um, Elaine Wilson-Ross talks about in her book more than enough. There's such a great responsibility when you are the first, only, and different. And, you know, there comes a lot with that. And she calls it a FOD, first, only, different. And, you know, I was the first at Ole Miss, um, you know, student body president. I definitely hope that I won't be the last female student body president at Ole Miss, um, and, you know, and, and it was hard, but, you know, I think that hopefully my journey encouraged other black women out there to run for student body president, to put themselves out there and to know that even when things get tough and hard, you still can, you know, go out and make some, some of some difference, you know, in a community that, you know, wasn't built for you, you know? And so, um, I was excited to serve as student body president and it was a stressful time. Um, but you know, and it's also the reason I will never, ever get into politics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you and Kamala Harris, you and Kamala Harris got that same black girl magic vibe going right now. Yeah, especially like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely First black like, women, you know. Yeah, um, and with that being said, like I do, I, I do just want to give you a little, a little bit more shine. Like you were the first black woman to like be a president at Ole Miss. Like that means a lot, like that says a lot. Uh, people don't, people don't, don't know what that means, but like that means a lot. And I think there have been ASB presidents since 1903 at Ole Miss. You were, you're one of, of five women who've been nominated or who've won. Like, that's huge. Since 1903, you're one of five women. So, like, we, we can't just, like, let that slide. Like, that's a big accomplishment. Yeah, and, and also, you, you can't even think, you got to think about the fact that at Ole Miss, you can't win on just the black vote, right? <laughs> <laughs> you have to have a, you have to have a good support system from, you know, the, the white uh, students as well. So, I guess that speaks to your ability to, you know, uh, connect with people that are different and diversify and things of that nature as well. So kudos to you. Kudos, kudos to you. Uh, and uh, kudos to Kamala Harris as well. <laughs> yes. Shout out to Kamala Harris. She's amazing. All right. So we only got, uh, we, we got about three minutes left. Um, one thing I know that you're good at is cooking. Like you cook. Yes. And you got like a whole channel and stuff like that. So if you could just like kind of talk to the people about like what you do with your cooking. Yeah, I just started cooking during COVID. Well, I've been cooking all my life. My family's full of cooks. My mom was a huge cook, chef, caterer. She, one of the things people said at her funeral was like her food. They kept talking about her food over and over again, like everybody was. And so Mm -hmm. I come from a line of amazing cooks. I'm not even close to them on the scale of like being a great cook. Um, I call myself decent compared to my family, but I love cooking. Um, I started cooking more for the public, I would say, during COVID. I started putting videos of me cooking and putting dishes on um, at my Instagram page. And it kind of got a little bit of attention. And I was like, you know what? I kind of always want to do a cooking class. So I did a, a homemade biscuit, buttermilk biscuit cooking class. And I had 
about 15 people join and people were like, oh, can you do more of these classes? So I put on another class and I had about 22 in that one. And then um, one of my friends reached out. She's in school at Wharton, Ivy League Business School. She reached out. She was like, hey, we're looking for a holiday event. Would you put on a cooking class? And so I actually did their cooking class last night, you know, cooking class and made it to the Ivy Leagues now, you know. And so <laughs> I've just been doing a little something cooking in the kitchen. But yeah, I love cooking. I'm just doing it for fun. I don't charge for the cooking classes. I did, however, part um, this week, actually, with a Mississippi nonprofit called for Brown Girls, led by a black woman who's amazing. Um, she's leading this um, nonprofit in Mississippi. And I basically partnered with them. And so all the groups I do cooking classes with from now on, I'm just going to ask them to donate to for Brown Girls. Um, and they reached out to me this morning and said, even since I've shared that I'm partnering with them, a couple people have already donated to them, um, mm -hmm. to their nonprofit. So I'm just using this for fun. It's a great way to connect and build community while we're all stuck at home during this pandemic. So um, it's just been fun and exciting and just put my, you know, my gifts and talents out there to the world to just have fun with. Yeah. And if you could go ahead, shout out your um, social media handles real quick, just so that like, if somebody wants to like follow one, go to one of your cooking classes, they'll, they'll have a link yeah, to definitely connect with me on, on, um, on Instagram. It's at Kimberly, K-I-M-B-R-E-O-Y, Dandridge, D-A-N-D-R-I-D-G. Um, it's at Kimberly Dandridge at Instagram. So yeah, connect with me on Instagram, also on Facebook, Kimberly Dandridge, also on Twitter, Kimberly Dandridge. So feel free to connect with me, reach out. Happy to always give any career advice, cooking advice, whatever, um, whatever is needed. And and she went kind of fast, so let's make sure we spell that again. It's K I M. Yeah, we'll link it. R E L Y. It's yes. a little yeah. different. It's a little yeah. different. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're definitely gonna link it in the description. So if you miss it now, you'll get it then. Um, definitely. But yeah, man, I, thank you for coming on the podcast. Uh, I feel like that was such a wide ranging interview. Um, thank you, Kimberly. And, yeah, and it was a, a really wide ranging interview. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> uh, and for real, uh, I feel like our audience knows so much more just after like th these past thirty five ish minutes, whatever the, whatever it is. So thank yeah. you guys. This is awesome. I appreciate you guys creating space for me to come on and um, and be a part of this. So kudos to you guys also for just putting your voices out there and leading, um, being great black men leaders that you are. So I appreciate it. Yeah, for sure. And if, if this is your first time listening to the podcast, make sure you follow us. Make sure you listen to more episodes, like, subscribe, review, all those things and get at us um, and let us know what you think about this episode.